Over the past few years, it seems like every couple of months brings us a new rocket launch, and not from NASA. These launches have become so frequent that you'd be forgiven if you tuned most of them out, unless you're really into rocket launches. But this year, there was one launch in particular that the whole world, space nuts and otherwise, should have noticed. Two, one, zero. Ignition. Liftoff of the Falcon 9 and Crew Dragon. Go NASA, go NASA, go SpaceX, Godspeed, Bob and Doug. When SpaceX's Falcon Heavy took off from a NASA launch pad, it marked a new era of spaceflight, one in which private businesses have as much of a stake in the success of manned missions as government space agencies. My question is, have we stopped along the way to think about the ramifications of that? What rules do companies like SpaceX have to follow once they slip the surly bonds of Earth? And if they break those rules, who makes sure that they pay for it? And as this technology evolves at a rapid pace and partnerships become more common and there is more money at stake, what or who stops outer space from becoming the new Wild West? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, and this is The Big Story. Michael O'Shea is a PhD student at the University of Toronto. He is a co-founder of PopScope Public Astronomy, and he is a freelance journalist, which is where we found him on this subject in The Walrus. Hi, Michael. Hey, Jordan. Good to be here. Well, thank you for joining us. And I guess my first question, uh, to give uh, people who don't pay attention to all the rocket launches a a little bit of context is, can you just tell me about uh, SpaceX Falcon Heavy launch? Absolutely. So yeah, what was so um, historic and exciting about that launch on, uh, on May 30th, besides happening, you know, at a, a pretty dark time for humanity, um, was that it was the first time in nearly a decade that a U.S. or a spacecraft from U.S. soil carrying U.S. astronauts into outer space was launched from U.S. soil. Uh, so since the retirement of the space shuttle program, the U.S. had actually been relying on the Russians to ferry their astronauts to space uh, to the tune of millions of dollars for each launch. U.S. astronauts would go to the uh, Russian agency's launch site and actually go to space on a Soyuz rocket. So a case of great, great cooperation, but very expensive for NASA, and that really limited NASA's operations um, if they couldn't launch from U.S. soil. But it was also historic for another reason, which was that it was the first time a, a private space company had ferried people of any kind, not only uh, NASA astronauts, into outer, outer space. So SpaceX, in partnership under contract with NASA, launched two NASA astronauts to the International Space Station. How did that arrangement come about? Yeah, so SpaceX is you know an interesting company, um, probably interesting because it's the brainchild of Elon Musk, love him or hate him, when he seems to put his mind to something, he does it quite, quite quickly and in, uh, depending on who you talk to, quite well. So I think about 20 years ago, he wanted to have this vision of, uh, I believe, traveling to Mars and maybe settling Mars. So he shopped around for rockets. I believe he approached the Russians initially. Um, when that didn't work out, he thought, why don't I try and make my own rockets? Um, and very quickly for... Uh, any kind of organization, public or private, Elon Musk and his company 
was able to build out their own through private space program pretty quickly. You know, they had some failures, but also a lot of successes. And so by a certain point, the SpaceX, you know, was reliable enough that they were able to get a contract with the International Space Station to ferry cargo to the International Space Station. Uh, so that was the you know, beginning of, of some formal partnerships with the government. SpaceX was also making money from launching satellites from other companies and, and countries. And so they had this, uh, this, this conversation, this evolving partnership, and, and after testing their launch system many, many, many times in ferrying cargo, the space station, SpaceX and NASA felt that their system was safe enough to uh, swap out the cargo uh, and put in some humans and fly them to the space station. So I know um, when you hear people like Elon Musk uh, talk about space, uh, it's often, you know, in the pursuit of the best of humanity and exploration and all that kind of stuff. But this is a private company. Is their end, their end goal is to make a, a profit, right? This is a for-profit business, and they're also not the only ones in this business. You're absolutely right. They are a private company. They're one of many jockeying for a piece of the pie that is the, the space economy. And I think to a lot of people, you know, including myself, there's a fear that we're going to turn space or space has already become a kind of wild west. And wild west, not in the, just the sense that there's a lot of rogue actors, but we're actually going to recreate the damage and all the awful things that happened in the Wild West in North America during the time of European settlement. So the question is, how do we not recreate those mistakes? How do we not export our worst humanity's worst impulses into space, but create um, a better, more hopeful, more mutually respectful vision of space that has less warfare, less conflict, less oppression, less nationalism, less colonization, and so on. That sounds amazing, and it's incredibly idealistic. But I guess my questions, and, and what I found so fascinating about your piece was just the questions that I'd, I'd never thought to ask myself before. So SpaceX is going up there, other companies are going up there, and their goal is to make money. And once they get up there, uh, what rules do they have to follow? Right. Um, and so, you know, when I began working on this article, um, I actually didn't know the extent to which there was a legal framework in outer space. I knew that, you know, there's probably some agreements at the UN, but I didn't know that there was a whole body of space law. There are folks who specialize in, in space law who are space lawyers. Huh. There's an institute for space law at McGill University, at universities in the States. There's all kinds of smart people at the UN talking about this. And so the, the, the simple answer is yes, there are laws in outer space. And those laws start um, at some distance above the Earth. One accepted boundary for that or is 100 kilometers above the Earth's surface. Um, so if you imagine Canada from sea level to 100 kilometers, um, the airspace there is subject to Canadian law. So any helicopter, whatever kind of aircraft flying in there is subject to Canadian law. Right. But above 100 kilometers, uh, space law would kick in. Space law is shaped by a whole number of factors and agreements, um, but the biggest one is probably the Outer Space Treaty, which has a much longer name. Uh, it's called the Outer Space Treaty for short, and that actually dates back to 1967. And you want to see 
idealism in action. I encourage you to look at, at, the, uh, at the articles of that space treaty. What kinds of stuff is in there? Yes, there's an optimism about the future of space. There's a hope for, for collaboration, uh, for using space for the benefit of all humankind. And that's surprising. You got to think about the conditions of the Cold War. You know, there was a fear that outer space would just become another zone of conflict between the two superpowers during the Cold War, the threat of uh, mass destruction. So in a case of you know, maybe surprising cooperation, Soviet Union, the U.S., and other powers came together you know, and created the, the framework to, uh, to cooperate in space. Um, created things like the uh, UN Office on Outer Space Affairs, uh, the UN Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. So there's great optimism in that, in that name. So you know, within nine years of coming together, by 1967, they were able to agree on this, this treaty. Uh, and since then, 110 countries have signed on to it. Give me an example of some of the actual rules in this treaty that govern the behavior uh, of crafts in outer space or countries or companies for that matter. Uh, so a big one is that while the treaty doesn't talk specifically about private space actors and you know, some critics would say that's a weakness of it, the drafters couldn't have imagined the explosion in private space activity when it was drafted. So there is room there for improvement. But indirectly, it does talk about private space activity. Um, and it says that all countries are responsible for uh, launches of any kind from their soil, private or public. Another example of sort of this, I would say, hopefulness or attempt at mutual cooperation is Article 2, which says uh, outer space, including the moon and other celestial bodies, is not subject to national appropriation by claim of sovereignty, by means of use or occupation, uh, or by other means. So who, uh, who would enforce those rules then if um, Elon Musk or the United States or any other country or company broke it? Yeah, so I think like anything at the UN, there isn't a direct enforcement mechanism. A lot of it is mutual shaming or finger wagging. You could also go into arbitration, right? If say um, some countries company did something, you know, that violated the law or sorry, the spirit or letter of this treaty, uh, you could go into arbitration. And I should say that these, um, these international agreements, there are ones that followed on the heels of the Outer Space Treaty. They do work. So there was a, a case where um, a Russian spacecraft broke up over uh, northwestern Canada and deposited a whole stream of radiation. And you know, through this framework, those responsible in Russia paid Canada for the cleanup and the damages. You mentioned that uh, the Outer Space Treaty was was created in 1967, and there have been updates and, and other agreements since then. How well have they kept pace with the rate of technological advancement? Because there are some things uh, that we're doing in space now that I don't think we would have imagined even, you know, a decade or two ago, right? Yeah. Well, I think a good system of legal... Uh, or a good legal framework you know, allows for changes, allows for technological changes to happen and still have a guiding framework. Many countries have constitutions that are decades or centuries old, and they're able to be interpreted in light of technological changes. The two big areas I would say is uh, that might want to be tackled in a future agreement. A formal agreement would be space junk or space debris, as there are just tons of disused parts, uh, debris from 
from booster rockets, just tons of stuff in outer space surrounding Earth, thousands of pieces. Uh, NASA keeps a, a database of these all kinds of just junk up there that's orbiting Earth at very high speeds. And any one of these pieces can be fatal to uh, you know, a spacecraft or to an astronaut, uh, given the speed at which they're, they're traveling. The other area is privatization. Um, what I learned in doing this article, though, is even though there hasn't been, you know, maybe a, a formal treaty passed or a binding resolution, there are, you know, smart, committed people discussing this in, for example, the UN Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. So what happens then? Uh, and, and if the system works, then that's perfect. But you kind of mentioned at the beginning of this discussion that you were worried about uh, space becoming the Wild West. And when I think about um, that metaphor, it it really suggests that all it takes is a few actors kind of not totally playing by the rules and no consequences being enforced. And, and while you've, you know, described uh, how the UN might, uh, you know, shame or, or negotiate with other countries to to resolve disputes, what happens if Musk, and I'm not saying it to pick on him, but just because he's the best known, uh, Musk or another company just says, no, I like, we're going to do this. And, and you know, how are you going to stop us? How do they stop them? Yeah. So a lot of this will depend on the, the regulatory framework within each country. Every country following the, uh, the lead of the U.S. in 2015 and 2018, when it passed legislation to make private space activity easier, other countries around the world have also passed uh, laws to make it easier to streamline approval of private space activity. Luxembourg followed suit, and the pace has only picked up. I think the United Arab Emirates was one of the most recent countries to announce their support for, for, for private space activity. And countries are interested in incentivizing this kind of activity. There's a lot of money to be made, a lot of uh, wealth for the country to um, to be had. So... A lot of this is going to, I think, kind of come down to individual countries. I'm, I'm most familiar with the U.S. case because so much seems to be uh, happening here. So when Musk launches a rocket or a satellite, he has to get approval from the U.S. government. And so if we are seeking closer oversight of something that uh, SpaceX does, we will need to, I think, pressure national governments to do more, especially the U.S. because it's the most active spacefaring nation because its actions carry a lot of weight um, inside or outside uh, a UN framework. If we're, I think, upset with something SpaceX is doing, I think the U.S. federal government might be where uh, we need to exert some pressure. Folks, I think, are familiar, might be familiar with the Starlink satellite system. Yeah, tell me a bit about that. Yeah, so that was actually one of my entry points into my article. I started thinking about who controls space, who's responsible for it. So... Starlink is a planned system of thousands of small satellites in outer space. And by small, I think we're talking about the size of a dinner table. And this is part of a trend towards smaller satellites that are easier to launch, easier to take down, easier to replace, and cheaper. And the idea is you could build more of them and create sort of a web or a constellation of satellites in outer space. So SpaceX, and he's not alone, there are other companies doing this and planning this, plan to create a network of not just hundreds, but thousands of dinner table sized satellites in outer space um, with the goal of providing high speed internet to residents of Earth. The problem is like any satellite, 
they're reflective and they're reflecting mm-hmm. sunlight um, back to Earth. So in some evenings or uh, some mornings, you might wake up or stay up and see what looks like a, a planet or a, a bright right. aircraft in, in the sky, which you know, is not just you know, a surprise or an inconvenience, but can actually interfere with uh, astronomical observations. And they, all, they all already have, actually. So you can imagine that as the number of these small satellites in outer space increase, um, not just from the hundreds, but into the thousands, there's a concern that it will not just interfere with uh, astronomical observations, but also in a more metaphysical sense, take away the night sky as a resource, as a shared resource for people to enjoy. Yeah. Starlink, though, you know, then approved by the U.S. government, you know, perfectly legal under U.S. law, which is guided by the Outer Space Treaty. So, so I think if we want closer oversight of things like Starlink, we might uh, want to put pressure on certain governments. Well, this leads me to kind of the last uh, couple of questions I have, which is just, look, I, I'm talking to you from Canada. You're talking to me from the United States. Um, there's a big election coming up in uh, a couple of months. Meanwhile, there is still Brexit to happen, and Russia seems to be uh, bickering with almost everybody. How likely is it that that countries will agree to uh, enforce these rules on their own corporations, which are presumably driving their economies? I think there's also a window of hope in pressuring companies or working with, with companies to resolve these problems without you know, resorting to the courts. We'll see, you know, in what good faith these companies are acting, but, you know, SpaceX did agree to work with astronomers to attempt to um, make their satellites less disruptive to astronomical observations. Uh, Right. I think SpaceX could do more, but that could suggest one avenue towards indirectly regulating companies through sort of private uh, partnerships or public pressure. I get, I get all of that, and I, I think that it can work in a lot of situations. I guess what what really intrigues me about the topic is is what if uh, Musk says no, we're not going to work with you, um, and then the UN has to go to the United States, which is benefiting economically from SpaceX, and say uh, get these guys to shut these satellites down or make them dimmer, um, and the U.S. government says, well, no. So my hope right now is that, you know, that through these forums at the UN, those kind of discussions could be addressed there and work it out on that level before we would sort of have a a UN versus U.S. situation. Uh, And I think given the power of the U.S., the U.S., you know, as sort of the the biggest person in the room has this ability to shape norms in outer space uh, for better or for worse. In response to your earlier question, though, um, about... Can we be hopeful about space if things on Earth seem pretty messed up right now? On one hand, you might see all these Starlink satellites being launched and think, you know, hearing about plans to mine asteroids and hear this language of colonization and dominance. And you might get very depressed about the future of space, and rightfully so. On the other hand, I think space in some ways has been resilient to the kind of political squabbling um, that we see on Earth maybe just for the time being. And I say that because in spite of all kinds of geopolitical tensions, um, countries do cooperate in space. You know, the uh, Russia and the U.S. have cooperated on the building of the International Space Station. As Putin squared off against Obama, U.S. astronauts were still blasting off the space station on Russian Soyuz spacecraft. 
they were all working uh, with, with the exception of some countries like China on the International Space Station every day. Uh, so my hope is that we can continue with uh, the best of our impulses in outer space and avoid uh, the worst of our human impulses that we have, unfortunately, too many examples of here on Earth. Well, I hope the uh, final frontier is different. Thank you so much for this today, Michael. Hey, thank you. It's great to be here. Michael O'Shea, co-founder of PopScope Public Astronomy and author in The Walrus. That was the big story. For more, you know by now the bigstorypodcast.ca is your go-to. You can also find us on any and all podcast platforms. You can email us, thebigstorypodcast, all one word, at rci.rogers.com. And you can find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.